You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Is there inflation or deflation? Will crypto be here or not? What's happening to cities? And what questions are the best questions to ask people? Well, I had a fascinating discussion with... Tyler Cohen, he's been on the podcast a bunch of times before, so maybe some of you have, have heard his prior appearances. He's basically a, I, I, he's not gonna like me saying this, but he's a genius economist and has just knows so much about so many things. Always a pleasure to just ask him a ton of questions about everything important in life and get the answer. So here he is. I went to Noma. I ate in Koreatown, the usual stuff. You're enjoying all that New York has to offer, the culture, the museums. All that you're missing. Museum capacity is above average, I was telling Jay. That's interesting. Uh, you think because people missed it for the entire year, so now they... I do think that people feel like 
they didn't take advantage of all that New York City has to offer. And so now they're not, they're trying not to make that same mistake. That is my view, because there are not many Europeans around. So it is the New Yorkers going to see MoMA. I do think it's going to be interesting. I feel like the psychology of New York right now is very high and uplifting and the articles are all very positive. I do think we haven't seen what the financial consequences are yet of losing the tax base and losing many services like sanitation, police, education, and so on that are going to have to um, sacrifice a little bit. And also something like one in three stores and businesses have shut down and we haven't really seen the pain of that yet. And maybe we won't see it. You know, there's unemployment and people have left and, and so on. But I'm hopeful for the best. And I, I hope the, you know, the the mayoral race picks a good candidate to to solve things. I don't know if that matters. But look, you're in Florida. We need you back here. Paying sales I, tax. I, I've been back and forth. And I, 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 I'm a resident of New York, so I'm paying taxes. We and uh, back, not forth. But you're not paying sales taxes at the local store. Well, here's a, well, okay. This is uh, an interesting question for an economist. And I'm curious if what you think of an idea, I'll pitch you an idea I have, but a big problem with New York city and other major cities right now is that the velocity of money locally went to near zero during the lockdown, you would get paid a dollar in income. And it, rather than staying for 20 days or so floating around New York city, it would go straight to Seattle, to Amazon. And I think that's one problem that not just New York city, but every major city faces. I'm curious what your view is on that. I think that's true. And New York City in particular is highly dependent on what cannot be more than like 200, 250 key local taxpayers. And I don't think most of them will go. But if say 10% of them end up in Florida, it's actually a big shift in revenue. And you get into a downward spiral because the garbage collection is not very good, which you see already in the streets. And then another few percent more leave. And uh, well, then, it becomes like the New York of the early 90s, which I loved, but it's not really what all of us have been rooting for, is it? No. And and, and by the way, so this death spiral you refer to is, is what I've written about. This is what I see as the real problem of New York City is that it has to be reversed. You can't fall into a spiral like this because fewer and fewer people will move to New York. More people will leave, which means a fewer, less tax base collected, you know, taxes collected which means, you know, fewer services offered and then the cycle continues. And I think that's a complicated problem that the light has not been shed on yet because it's a little too early. And there's a whole new center of town. It's like Chelsea through Tribeca, where Google and the other tech companies have located or are expanding. And that part of Manhattan is amazing, but I worry about the rest of it. But that's where the action is. And everything shifted downtown, as you know. Because you can put your restaurant out, stop car traffic. Midtown doesn't really work that way. So I fear for Midtown. Uh, I don't fear for kind of the lower west side. I think that's amazing at this moment. Right, and same same with Brooklyn. Brooklyn is amazing right now. I think Brooklyn is made possibly better than than ever. And but the the and Midtown people will say, well, who cares about Midtown? And I agree with them culturally. But the unfortunate thing is that's the bulk of the tax revenues is exactly. Midtown. It's the fiscal dinosaur. But you say Brooklyn. The parts of Brooklyn we go to are doing great. I'm not sure about Brooklyn as a whole. Brooklyn is huge, right? It would be America's number four city. Yeah, I number three it city, has a actually. Lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, Brooklyn has a lot of problems, but Brooklyn's problems are not the same as Manhattan's problems. Brooklyn's problems were always Brooklyn's problems, and they just keep getting better. And, and also the youth 
are moving to Brooklyn more so than ever. Although now because of lower rent prices, uh, the youth are moving to the Lower East Side and the East Village and and uh, and, and Harlem and some places like that. Uh, so I think I think young people, this is a great time to move to New York. Will that be enough to counterbalance billions of lost tax revenues while budgets are increasing? I'm not sure. Uh, but, and you know, there's, there's also the rent moratorium, which is affecting New York, which is something like one in four Manhattan, Manhattan people have not paid rent in a year. Well, what do you think is going to happen when locally and nationwide, these rent moratoriums are over? Well, locally and nationwide are very different questions. I yes. think the country as a whole will do fine with real estate. Property values are up. Cities like Nashville are booming. They're already past the problem and not looking back. But I think two cities in particular, New York and San Francisco, will have a very tough time fiscally. And essentially, they will end up broke and have no degrees of freedom in their budgets. I, I agree. And in fact, it's funny you mentioned, well, first off, the, the rest of the country benefits from the problems of New York City and San Francisco. Like, I always tell people, it's like Superman moving from Krypton to Earth. In Krypton, he might have been just some like dorky guy, but on Earth, he is Superman. And moving from New York to Nashville, it's like you have Kryptonian dollars, not crypto dollars, but Kryptonian dollars. Crypto dollars too. Crypto dollars too. And I was just in Nashville and I can tell you what happened in South Florida a year ago when all the New Yorkers moved to South Florida and now real estate prices are almost 50% to 100% higher. The exact same thing is what's Nashville is going. You, you cannot asking price is a myth in Nashville. Like it's going for 30%, 40% higher now. And so I'm already looking at what are the next tier cities, like maybe Atlanta, maybe St. Louis that are going to sort of benefit from the, um, fl the exodus from San Francisco, LA and New York, but it's not just a money thing. It's a talent thing as well. Like, uh, tech offices, banks there are moving to some of these second and third tier cities. Life in Nashville is great. Look, I live in Northern Virginia. You can still get like a great house for less than a million dollars and be half an hour from Washington, D.C. and three hours by train to New York. So that's the competition, right? Yeah. How are you going to beat that? Unless I don't know. You're kind of crazy. So New York will have more crazy people like in the old days. Uh, that will be interesting, as they say. It'll be OK for me, but I'm not going to live in New York City. No, I mean, you you and I are both from New Jersey. We grew up there and you remember as well as I do New York city in the seventies. It was, it was not fun. It was not, everybody says, Oh, maybe we'll go back to the artsy seventies. New York city in the seventies was a bad place, but it was fun. It was a, a fun, bad place. Let's make that clear. You can know, see I, Miles Davis and Andy Warhol painted there. I mean, it was incredible. Okay. But that's going into New York city when you're like 18, if you're going to New York city, when you're like 13, it was for me, it was, I grew up partly there. It was, it was scary. I went in to play chess. I was scared, uh, you know, every time I was going to use a curse word there, but I desisted. Uh, you so, can, you're, you're more than welcome. I remember I, going into New York city to play chess, uh, at, at the tables in front of, um, Port Authority. I was mugged actually as a kid. The muggers used to chase me and I ran away. I always <laughs> got lucky, but it really was just luck. I got too scared to run away. I would just say, just, I would just give them everything I had and then run. <laughs> so, um, but, but let's bring that discussion though to, oh, oh, the idea I wanted to pitch you. What do you think of this idea? So you create something called, uh, let's just call it for lack of a better word, New York city bucks. And so 
every time I do a negative sales tax. So you know how like UBI is sometimes referred to as a negative income tax, particularly by once by Milton Friedman. But what about the idea of a negative sales tax? So if I shop locally in New York, instead of getting charged 6%, I get given 6% of my purchase in let's call it New York City bucks that 10 years from now can be redeemed one for one for real dollars, but I could only get and spend New York City bucks during these 10 years in New York City. So to encourage local shopping. Well, some number of small Austrian villages tried that during the European Great Depression. I think in the years like 1929, 1932, they called it script. Uh, it did seem to work. I'm not sure it's a large scale solution, but at the margin, it helps local merchants. It supplies some liquidity. It keeps some demands local. So I think it can be one part of the tool bag, but people don't treat it like money. It's more like, uh, you know, those stamps you would get at the supermarket when you were a kid. But what about the fact that it's redeemable 10 years from now in actual dollars? I mean, people could game it, presumably, but let's say they don't. But 10 years from now for consumer dollars at the retail level, that feels like an eternity, right? Yeah. So I think for people, it's like 60 cents on the dollar and they'll spend it locally to get rid of it. And it, it will be marginally effective. So I think it's a good idea, but I don't think it will overturn the basic tendency uh, of a lot of dollars leaving New York City. Yeah, because people got into the habit of Amazon. So it's so not just the habit. Like Amazon is better than, dare I say, uh, a number of local New York City bookstores. I don't want to name them, but you know which ones I mean. Yeah, the big one. <laughs> better selection. So, uh, but, you know, better delivery. Maybe in New York people steal it or something. But if that's the defense of your local business, well, they can't use the internet because people will steal the package. Your city is still kind of screwed, I would say. So so what what are, and, and this not, doesn't just apply to New York City, but London's going through this. Again, San Francisco's going through this. As you mentioned, LA is going through this. What what What's some other solutions? Like Andrew Yang was thinking of, of you know, adding uh, casino gambling in the city. But again, there's that, I don't know if bad money is a good way to create good money. I don't think gambling money is going to turn anything around. Uh, I'm much more optimistic about Los Angeles, which is a quite diversified economy. It is not dependent on finance and a small number of taxpayers the way New York City is. There are just many different neighborhoods in, in LA. Actually, some of them are nice. I'm not sure in New York City for all its glories, there's anywhere, no matter what your income, it's just plain, flat out, gorgeous, beautiful, nice, easy. Don't think it exists. No. And in fact, a common statement, I mean, I've worked in New York city all my life and all my adult life. And one thing we would always say is that if we didn't need to live in there for work, it's a really hard place to live. And that's true. There's, and every area of New York city you mentioned has at some point been a really bad area, which like, as you mentioned, it's not always been true for, for LA and other cities. Uh, so, so you see the possibility for them to return to bad areas could happen again. But like, so what, what would be then, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tapping your economist mind. What, what would you see as a, a creative solution? Well, I, I'm not sure there's a solution. I think the future for New York City is to be a much younger city, more like the Berlin of 15 years ago, more creative, but more rotten, more dangerous. And I don't see what can be done to stop that. Look, crime rates are rising across the country. That's not just a New York problem. Fourth of July weekend, 88 people were shot in Chicago. That's wow. Chicago, not New York. But the point is, you cannot resist every national trend. 
And I think it's time again for this city to take its lumps. And my personal solution is never ever to move to New York City. Uh, I don't know that there's a collective solution. In a sense, it's returning to the historical mean, right? History matters. Yeah, so so let's say you were just elected mayor of New York. What would be like the first three things you would do? And I know I'm putting you on the spot, but you're you're a genius. You can handle it. Read the budget, read the budget, and then read the budget, and then go home and weep because I probably would have no degrees of freedom. Everyone yeah, has don't. to be paid. There's schools to be run. I haven't looked at those numbers, but from what I hear secondhand, uh, I don't think it matters that much who gets elected mayor. And I mean that in a bad way, not in a good way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. If I were like whatever budget shortfalls they're going to have this year, you have to multiply it by at least five or six to see what the long term problem is. And it's it's going to be well over one hundred billion dollars that New York will end up in the hole. And it's it's you know, this dates back to an earlier conversation we had about just federal stimulus in general during the pandemic. And I remember you said we could keep printing money for for years if we had to, like for two, three, four years if we had to. And I've had similar conversations with even people at the Fed. And I'm just curious, what, what's your what's your opinion right now on the current state of stimulus and how much can the government afford to really help things and how long can they continue to, to, to help? I mean, right now the economy feels great, the stock market feels great, and yet we're at a pretty high unemployment level relative to the past 10 years. And it's not that great right now, although people are feeling good, they're feeling flush because of the stimulus. I don't think things are that great. They're great for people who sell internet goods. That, in a sense, is the two of us. I would put it this way. We handed out $4 trillion. It's a lot of money. We could have done more, but if that $4 trillion, like $3 trillion of it made sense, and $1 trillion was a mistake. The last trillion was counterproductive. Kept people from going back to work, and it made the rate of inflation too high. So we overshot. Now, it was probably better to overshoot than to undershoot. But we overshot. We don't want to do anymore. Now we just need to adjust. We will do okay. We're the most dynamic economy in the world. We have the best vaccines. But I think there are so many people with either residual mental health issues or just normal, honest people who said, like, what the hell was I doing in that job? And they're going to take a lot of time to search. And that will hurt revenue. It will hurt output. It may well give them more meaning in their lives but it's going to mean a slower adjustment and that's going to take its toll, including on New York, but not only. Yeah. I mean, if you were to pick a, you know, initially, of course, a lot of the exodus from cities was to Austin, was to South Florida, was to Salt Lake city. There's probably other cities just to be a little optimistic before we really dive into it. What areas of the country are you maybe optimistic about in the next wave of people moving or dispersing talent or whatever? Well, I think it's obvious that, Unless you are very well off, the best lives in the United States are in the Southeast. Cost of living is reasonable. And there's just plenty of land and you can buy your wonderful house. The food has become excellent and it all has the Internet. And I think if you, you look at the places, not that saved the most lives, but in the long run, that is sadly not what will matter. The places that have bounced back the quickest are mostly in the Southeast. They took the hit up front mostly stayed open, have low unemployment, have a kind of feeling of self-confidence. So I'm bullish on the Southeast. That said, if you're a billionaire, you want to live on the West Coast. But a normal person, no. Move to Texas. Again, there, there's kind of a, I'm curious about your philosophical take on, or your economics take on the philosophy that 
we had to lock everything down to save every life. And, you know, I think, you know, that philosophy morphed in the beginning from flatten the curve to not, you know, every life must be saved. Even though that philosophy doesn't occur in other parts of public policy, for instance, smoking or driving, we let cars on the road, we let people smoke, we don't care about every life, life being saved. Uh, but this one, we, uh, the, the government took a harsh, almost unconstitutional view that we need to deprive people of their right to work. We need to, you know, hurt some parts of society to make other parts okay. And and I my, my heart goes out to everybody affected by COVID. Everybody, and everybody's been affected by COVID in some way or other. But in terms of policy, you know, have you changed your view in any way? I mean, I don't know what your view was before, but have you changed your view in any way? Or do you think we took to an extreme of taking from the lives of others to protect the lives of an unclear amount? Well, I think when we first locked down to do what you call flattening the curve, that was the right decision for some yes. limited period of time. Even there, we should have been prepared in advance. Like we didn't have to do that. When the day came, we had to do it. But you know, if we had started preparing in January, that itself would not have been necessary. But once it came and everyone woke up, yes, you needed to teach people what was happening, how to be at least partially safe and get the hospitals ready. But after that, I do not believe in general prolonged lockdowns. I think life has to go on. You should have basic precautions. I don't think they should have had, you know, indoor NBA arenas with 27,000 fans. And mostly we didn't. Uh, but I don't believe in like closing all the stores. Uh, so the Southeast, in my opinion, came closest to a sane approach. My own state, Virginia, had a reasonably sane approach. They were locked down for a bit longer than they need to be. But things reopened. Uh, living there was okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, uh, Virginia was the first state I visited post the initial phases of the pandemic. Like I visited there around August and everybody was outside. They were wearing masks, but everyone was outside. People were eating in restaurants. I performed at a comedy club that was, that was open. There was social distancing, but I was able to perform there and people came out. So Virginia was actually the first place I visited. It was very, it was very pleasant. Um, no, no issues, but now, and right we do now, we not have above average fatalities, Virginia. You know, we did okay. I wouldn't say we did great. There was a lot of stupidity, but we were not some train wreck relative to the rest of the country. Same with Florida. Yeah, no, it, it, that's true, and that's why the second place I, I visited was Florida. And, uh, but now, you know, every now the headlines are about you know, given. I, I think the headlines are always very naive and cater to the naive, but that's okay. Uh, economics and inflation are too complicated even for most economists and certainly for me, but every, the headlines now are inflation and, you know, they quote lumber prices, they quote food price, they quote gas price, they quote chip prices. But as you pointed out in a recent article that you wrote on Bloomberg, a lot of these could be transitory like lumber. Of course, during for a whole year, they didn't cut down trees in a forest and now lumber price prices are actually, so lumber doubled or tripled. Now lumber prices are coming down because their people are back to work. They're cutting down trees. They're going to build houses and so on. So, uh, you know, same thing with chip prices, the supply chain from China was shut down. They make all the chips, but now they're coming back. Chip prices will eventually go down. How much of inflation right now that people are, that are in the headlines, headline inflation, do you think is transitory and how much is sort of now here for to stay because of the money stimulus? I think it's mostly transitory. 
I think we'll have above 3% inflation for two years. That's a bad thing. It's not the end of the world. Look, we both grew up with higher rates of inflation than that. It is a negative. But as scenarios go, I would say the fact that we have inflation is stemming from partly robust demands. And it's not a good thing, but it's a good symptom of the fact that we're recovering. So I'm not panicked about it. I think five to 10 years from now, the rate of inflation will be whatever it would have been had there not been a pandemic, which is probably about 2%. I, I agree with you. I And I agree with your statement. And in, in, in this article, I read that there won't be any hyperinflation. Most of the inflation I'm seeing is because A, there's an increase in demand now that people are leaving their homes. And B, there was a decrease in supply because all the supply chains broke down. Now, hopefully as a country, factory corporations start to have a plan B that not all of our goods are made in China, which so easily, you know, cause a problem when they, they shut down. So hopefully businesses learn their, their lesson. But the, the other factor that, uh, again, a guest of mine who was, who works at the federal reserve told me, uh, there's so much demand for the dollar from around the world because there's really no other default currency. Yes. That's also keeping deflationary pressure in the economy. And look, we're just seeing a lot of productivity gains. Work from home is a big deal. It's super convenient for many people, or they can afford to live in a cheaper area, and that's deflation. If you can move from the Upper West Side to Nashville, it doesn't show up in our statistics as deflation, but that is for you as a human being, massive deflation. Even your ice cream stick is not gonna cost as much. Pay less sales tax, everything's cheaper, food is cheaper, barbecue's better. You go to a club, it's half the price. I know, like so. So, like the Upper West Side of New York City, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm roughly making this up, but this will be roughly accurate. Like a, a four or five bedroom home uh, apartment it was a really nice apartment in the Upper West Side. That'll go for about eight million, and and that'll be about three thousand square feet. And in Nashville, uh, uh, an eight thousand square foot home on five or six acres probably go for about three million. So that's just an example, like play, a place that's 15 minutes from Nashville. So, so that's we an example. We create our own forms of deflation as individual human beings. And you know, you go to Amazon now, you try to buy a book, some old book, and like all the hardcovers are now $953. Like what the hell is that? Yeah. But the thing is people aren't gonna buy it. They're gonna find other options. So I think our ability to find those other options, we all had to find other options for things during the pandemic. And that general skill, is way higher than it was two years ago. Yeah, so defining the other options, is that's really interesting. It's such an important part of deflation and inflation. Like, let's say 100 years ago, you lived in a town, there was one store, you didn't have any other options to buy a, a hammer or a piece of fruit or a, a cup of coffee. But now people have many options because of technology and the internet and traveling and, and mobility and so on that that creates a natural deflation in the system. And I've never really looked at it that way, but, and also it's important to realize some inflation is positive. Sure. W what are the conditions would you say for hyperinflation? Well, we're not close to them. If people lose faith in the government and the government has no prospect of ever raising taxes to pay off its bills, you can get a hyperinflation. But look, that's Argentina, Venezuela, United States is not close to that. Another form of deflation, I would say, is your dog. So many people, they went out and bought dogs. 
Now, momentarily, those dogs are often expensive, but for years, that dog will keep you from spending money on other things. Maybe it was a mistake, uh, but you're going to smile at your dog for the next seven years and not go to the theater. My so wife bought. My, my wife bought a cockatoo, so yes. she went to an extreme, but it's okay. I, I am now smiling at the cockatoo. look at that cockatoo. Uh, how much did it cost? No, what does it cost to look at it at the margin? Oh, Maybe zero. Zero, exactly. That's your life. Yeah. Cockatoo deflation. Bring it yeah. on. Not now, for me, but for you. Now, now we stay home and, and watch the cockatoo instead of going out and spending money. That's but, right. And, and, you know. Chess, so you're playing more chess. What does that cost you? Uh, mental stability, but other than that, nothing. <laughs> yeah, so people massively have substituted into these free or, or almost free hobbies, right? They saw the Queen's Gambit, they start playing chess, cheapest hobby you can think of. Yeah. Like it should be they have to pay you to play, but no, people play for free. And you know, the other aspect of hyperinflation is that you see it often in countries that borrow money in currencies other than their own. So the Ger Germans in 1920s, they didn't borrow money in marks. They owed money in pounds and dollars and so on. So, you know, Argentina didn't borrow in pesos. They borrowed in dollars in the 80s and their currency collapsed. The U.S. borrows in, in dollars and, and people are willing to lend to us because there's nobody else to lend to. So I think we're far from that quality of hyperinflation. Yes. Yeah, so I see the risk of hyperinflation as not literally zero, but as close to zero as one could expect. You know, something like an asteroid would have to hit the planet. Should the U.S. borrow more money, given that it could? Well, I think in future crises, yes, but not at the moment. I would say we borrowed a trillion dollars too much. We shoveled too much money to people. We should have been encouraging them to get back to work. That exacerbated these supply shortages, kept them from reintegrating into the workforce. But again, I'm okay with a bit of overshooting. The other risk is undershooting. But look, next time something really weird happens, we're going to go crazy borrowing and we'll probably get away with it again. Like, let's say, let's say there's a, um, uh, a variant of smallpox now that hits the U S and everybody goes crazy. How do you think, how do you think we'll react to it? Will we, will we be a little calmer or will we do, you know, shut everything down for a year and print a lot of money? I'm not sure what percentage of our population has pre-existing protection, uh, but I think some fair number of deaths would cause a kind of panic because it's a much higher mortality rate across different age groups than COVID-19 has been. So we would end up printing a lot of money and it would be a socially dicier proposition because people would freak out about their kids. Kids have no particular protection against smallpox just because they're young. But as you know, for COVID, they did. When it comes to people's kids, middle America freaks out. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, 
I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating handfuls of thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag, taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra-sharp cheddar cheese. (sighs) 
to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook Cheddar, extraordinary dairy. In this paper I looked at that you wrote on uh, Bloomberg, you mentioned in two different articles, one, crypto is here to stay, but it may or may not go as high as people think. I agree with you in the final outcome, which is that you'll get into a situation where stocks might go up six or 7% a year or 8% a year, but that crypto become in, in the process of some crypto becoming a semi-stable currency, expect returns more like 1% a year. And what, and you know, Nassim Taleb has written actually even a more, uh, I would say drastic article in that direction, which says that crypto will never be a stable currency and it will go to zero, which I don't agree with, but 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 your article leaves room for discussion. You know, where will it stabilize? You know, what are the characteristics of a currency? Maybe, maybe describe that that article a little bit. Well, I think crypto at some point it has to become a normal thing. Look, just think of stocks. There was a time in world history centuries ago when stocks were new, right? Limited liability companies, joint stock companies. They were extremely profitable. Most people couldn't get in on the ground floor. Over time, not completely, but stocks became normalized. It was a good thing they became normalized. Seems to me to the extent crypto is useful, maybe we're uncertain how much, but it does seem useful. It too will become a normal thing like stocks did. Now, are stocks completely stable? No. Do I think crypto will ever be completely stable? No. But at the end of the day, I don't think of crypto as a currency. I think of it as a, a new set of institutions. And stability of value is not the primary feature that's being sold. That's okay with me. I think crypto can live that way. You know the Vitalik Buterin joke? He says like in the stock market, when things drop 20%, they call it Black Monday. In crypto markets, we call it Monday. <laughs> I like that. And you that's know, it's okay, a, right? It, it's interesting because crypto probably has not really been used that much as a currency. It has been used more as a platform to develop you know, different technologies and so on. It's kind of a platform for creating decentralized technologies, whether that's storage or some aspects of contract law or whatever. Uh, you know, the blockchain technology has has some use. Whether or not it has been really used as a currency, I'm not so sure. But one thing that's interesting, though, is that you see all these Fortune 500 companies and hedge funds switching some of their cash reserves to crypto that could create enough demand to power it higher just because there's, you know, as you know, a fixed supply you leave the door open in your article of, we don't know where the stable value is. If you were to guess, do you think it's higher than here or what's your thoughts on that? Partly it depends on how the regulators react. I think there'll be a big backlash from government. I don't think they can stop what's happening, but they can make it much tougher. Uh, but look, if you think that Bitcoin is partly a substitute for gold, and if you think that crypto assets on something like an Ethereum platform in less than 10 years will be used to send remittance to Mexico or lend money to farmers in Ethiopia, both of those are totally plausible, non-weird views, in my opinion. Crypto will have real value. I can't tell you the number, but I don't see why it's some bubble that has to pop. I can't tell you, you know, what Microsoft will be worth eight years from now. But it seems to me, if crypto were just a bubble, it would be gone by now. It had its chance to pop. There was a big collapse in the prices. You know, it came back. I don't think you can dismiss it anymore. 
Yeah, I agree. And and you point out that uh uh you know there's a, a level of education has to work just like as it did. That's a good analogy with stocks from uh, a couple hundred years ago. But just as people needed to be educated on what a company was, what stock was, a large portion of the United States, I would argue, ninety percent don't really understand what Bitcoin is. I mean, it's they, hard. They never will. Most yeah. economists don't understand it. Not just ninety percent. I mean. Exactly. Like people want to understand it, but they never really wanted to understand the internet. So like you would never say Amazon is, uh, basically an, an, an IP address using the TCP IP protocol where you could happen to make transactions. It's not explained in technical terms. It's a store that happens to be on the web. And it took about 10 years or so for people to get used to the idea that, Oh, I could put my credit card on this and buy things, but it happened and now internet is a daily part of our life. No, no one, no one says the internet's a scam. And as late as 2002, 2003, I heard smart people saying the internet was a scam. And this was a technology that's been around yeah. since 1971. So Look, here's the thing with Bitcoin or crypto. Once you think you understand some of it pretty well, those bastards come along and invent more new ideas, which is admirable, but it's like, Hey, like what's DeFi? Like I thought I understood this. Now I've got to learn a whole new bunch of stuff. And six months later or less, you've got a web date. So, you know, you're chasing a very fast rabbit here. Yeah, I mean, do you see, I mean, one thing I always wonder with a lot of these things, like, like crypto in particular, let's say blockchain has use. You could use blockchain technology without the crypto, which is what makes me question it as a currency. Although again, the fact that some people are using it in place of currency as a store of value I, I, I see what you're saying that it's not necessarily a store of value, but people are using it as one, just like gold is ultimately a rock, but people started using it as a store of value. Yeah. It does suggest that that use case will remain as well. I think Bitcoin's a store of value, like Ethereum does store value, but I suspect it's use as a platform rather than ether, the currency is its future. Whereas Bitcoin to me is competing with gold in portfolios as a hedge, and if rich people make it half of 1% of their portfolios, a high price is justified. Yeah. And, and okay. So, so moving on, what, what do you think? Like every city, as you pointed out, is, is having increasing crime rates. I mean, New York city is something up, up like something like 200% over the past, you know, between 2019 and now, and this is happening in cities all across the country. Like you mentioned in Chicago, but I could say, give examples in every city, including, including in South Florida. Uh, what, what do you think is contributing to the rise in crime? Well, I think initially, you know, initially I thought, well, it's because of the lockdown, right? So people are mentally more tense. They have frustrations. They have fewer other things to do. Uh, but I looked at some data a few days ago, and it seemed to indicate that violent crime was rising, you know, even a bit before the lockdown. So the dramatic fall in crime starting, say, in the early 90s, was very unexpected by social scientists. And it's still not quite explained. A lot of it seems to relate to changes in the drug trade. So the uptick in crime now, I don't think is very well understood, but it does seem there are these social memes or feelings that get communicated from one person to another. And we're entering a period where those memes involve higher tension and conflict. And you see it like in internet comments also. So. I'm not sure how explicable it is, but I think we're entering a general period where many things are weirder. 
you know, crypt, the creativity of the crypto people is part of that. You've got to be weird to come up with those crypto ideas. Again, bravo to them. But I would say the key trend is more weirdness. Some of that is very good. Some of that is very bad. I think it was in the first chapter of the first free economics book where they suggested that most crime is committed by 18 year old men, right? So yes. uh, now 18 years before the real sharp decrease in crime was Roe versus Wade and there, there was a, a huge increase in the number of abortions. And now this is not making any kind of statement about abortions, I'm pro-choice, but uh, uh, you know, the first chapter of Freakonomics uh, suggests that perhaps the Roe versus Wade is what resulted in a decrease in crime 18 years later. There is a big study from the Boston Fed trying to debunk Levitt on that. I've never worked through the details of that debate, uh, but I think it's highly uncertain. But I would agree with the general point that the ultimate determinants of things like crime rates are hard to understand. And the early sociologists, people like Durkheim, I think they understood that. There's an ineffability to sort of, in its guts, what society is and how it changes. It's just not fully scientific. Like, why do some areas have all these great poets or great painters or great, like, you know, rock stars and other times don't? You can pull factors out of your ass, so to speak. At the end of the day, there's something mysterious about that. And I think it's the same kind of problem. What are you currently researching now? I am co-authoring a book with venture capitalist Daniel Gross. It is due out next May. I'm having dinner with Daniel tonight, in fact. And the book is about... What do the social sciences know about finding and discovering talent? And, and, you know, that's a very interesting question because obviously, you know, you were at, at the age of 15, you were New Jersey state champion. Am I, am I correct? Am I getting the dates correct? correct? Yes. Yeah, not, so yeah, not champion chess. of the whole state. I wasn't right. like Napoleon of New Jersey, but yes. But, sorry. Yeah. You were the king of New Jersey. You were the state chess champion. And so, you know, a lot of studies about talent and skill have often focused on chess because it's such a great domain to study. Chess, violin, memory. These are the classic Anders Ericsson, 10,000 hour rule uh, domains. And what is your view on, on, obviously you were a very talented young person. So Anders Ericsson would say on one extreme, there's no such thing as talent. Other people give it more of a 50% nature, 50% nurture. What is your view, given a skill, um, and let's say in particular a mental skill, so so things like height don't matter or, or whatever, what, what, what's your view of the issue of talent, you know, nature versus nurture on, on developing a skill? I think sturdiness and durability and willingness to practice are somewhat underrated. I think most smart people overrate the importance of IQ. But that said, for jobs at the very top, I think IQ is very important. To be the chess world champion, IQ is very, very important. Kasparov, Magnus Carlsen, those people are just like geniuses as individual humans. Uh, but if you look at regressions run across chess players or workers, it's remarkable how little IQ matters. And smart people are shocked when they hear that. That's one of the lessons of my book. That's, that's interesting because obviously, Tyler, you have a high IQ. And I think a lot of people who know you and know your relationship to chess, for instance, would say, oh, you're a great chess player because you're so smart. And yet we both know people who are incredibly smart in every, in other areas like physicists or mathematicians or whatever, who no matter how, what they do, they cannot play chess. Well, do you think there's some, you know, talent that you had that was separate from IQ that propelled you? 
I think most people who know me overrate how smart I am. <laughs> what they underrate is that at age 59, I'm still working at like 120% capacity and trying to improve on things every day. And I've done that since I was 13 or 14. And that's really, really valuable. Like almost all my peers, well before age 59, I'm not saying they've stopped working, but they've kind of given up improving. And yeah, that I, is the biggest difference. Not that I'm like some really smart guy who's smarter than they are. I'm not. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree that, um, not that you're not as smart as people think you are, because I think you're being humble, but uh, I agree that the, there's, an, there's a skill to learning. And so yeah. that if you learn chess very well to a certain level, you could probably learn, you know, poker or go or backgammon or some other related domain, maybe even math using the same set of learning skills that helped you to learn chess. So I think that is, is the skill there. I I'm unclear. Like I've seen some very talented 10 year olds beat, you know, I always wonder with these 10 year olds, they didn't have really the time to get as good as they are. I mean, there's a 12 year old grandmaster now, as you pointed out on your, yes. on your blog, he didn't really have oh, the time. Jersey, I might add. Yeah. Yeah. Leave that part out. Uh, Avi Manu, I think his name is. And, and he didn't have the time really to develop the skill the way other people do. So there must be some talent there. Look, there are clearly talents when it comes to chess. Spatial ability is part of it. Uh, simply the desire to focus so much on one thing is pretty scarce. Like who gives a damn about the silly game, right? People should pay you to play it. So presumably <laughs> this 12 year old grandmaster has that, uh, but how much further will he go like being a grandmaster, in a way, it's not that good. Like, where's he rated in the world? He's not in the top 80. Yeah, right. So no, it, it's funny. It sucks, right? Nothing against this kid. He's probably great. But whether he'll become the next Magnus Carlsen depends on a lot of things, including courage. And you look at Karyakin, who had been the youngest grandmaster, who, you know, tied Carlsen in part of their match. But there is some way in which he lacked imagination cunning and daring in a way that Magnus has always had or Kasparov has always had. And that means he'll never be world champion. So it's like a multiplicative model where a lot of different things kick in and you need all of them to become Napoleon. You know, it, it, it's so funny because there's a lot to unpack there, not from chess perspective, but it could be business success, political success, you know, uh, other academic success, many things. But a, what was interesting is Karyakin, his entire life, you know, he was the number two player in the, in the world at the, uh, when he challenged Carlson. And like you said, he drew Carlson in the actual match and then lost when they sped up the, the, the time frame. And all his life, he was treated as like a super genius, number two in the world. And yet at the same time, he's, you, you just damned him with the second statement. The games bore me. I don't want to watch him. They put him online. I'm like, no, please. And, and then what you see from Carlson's games and Kasparov's games, and by the way, they're two wildly different players, but this, and I'm, and I hope everyone listening just takes the analogy to entrepreneurship or business, you know, or academics or whatever, or music. But the one thing they're good at, in addition to everything else is the unexpected. You, you, you could look at their games all day long thinking you know what's going on and then they'll do something unexpected. And it's the unexpected that seems to drive success. That by itself is a skill set. coming up with, I, even in economics, I'm sure what really excites you is when you see a paper or when you have an idea that nobody else expected. 
Yes, and it's noteworthy both Carlson and Kasparov had significant achievements in other areas, right? I don't know that actually. What does Carlson do other than chess? Well, first of all, in fantasy football, which is super competitive, it's more competitive than chess. For a while, he was world number one. You're kidding. That is really hard to do. There's articles about this online. Uh, but the other thing Magnus did, this is like chess, but it isn't. During pandemic time, he reinvented the world of chess with himself as one of the equity holders and said, we're not, we're done with these slow tournaments. We're going to do, you know, an hour a game and I'm going to own the IP rights to all this. And, you know, viewers are going to like this better. And I think he, he basically turned out to be right. Like slow chess is back to existence. But the Magnus tournaments are more interesting, more important. But he reinvented the whole world of chess with himself, like as the Napoleon. You're right. He has become like a business mogul as, as like his second incarnation. And he's still doing his first incarnation. And Karyaki at the same time, while he was number one in fantasy football. Now, can you, three things all in one year. Can you imagine Karyakin like doing one of those? No slight to Karyakin. He must be very impressive. But, and again, with Kasparov, he has all these books that are bestsellers. He's been in political activism. Uh, people consult him on artificial intelligence. Uh, he's done many other things. Not, I'm not saying everyone agrees with everything he's done, but he has really quite a non-chess career. Yeah, no, he's dynamic. I mean, I would say his main thing right now is his activism and human rights around the world. And he's done an amazing job creating organizations and helping people and, and so on. And so, so, so economically, just to kind of sum it up, I think it seems like the U.S. is going through various problems. Like one problem is, uh, as an, uh, is employment. So as an example, on the one hand, there's high unemployment still, but on the other hand, small businesses like restaurants can't hire cooks anymore. For some reason, there's no, there's no demand from workers to work in a restaurant at the current, currently, like I bet you any restaurant owner listening to this is having a hard time hiring people. And I'm sure that's happening in other industries as well. Is this due to the continued unemployment and stimulus, or is this, is this because we, people have found other things to do, as you suggested in terms of deflation or what do you think it's is it, both, right? Mm -hmm. People deciding they don't want that life anymore. Some of it is the unemployment benefit. Some of it might be women who have children where the, the future of the schools of those children for the next year is perhaps still somewhat uncertain. So we have labor force problems, both people without jobs and employers who can't get the right workers. And those are not going to go away over the next six months. And I hope we can open our schools successfully. Uh, I'm a little worried that with the new variants, you'll have a lot of cases, very, very few fatalities. But when kids test positive, people might flip out. And if we're just like closing the schools every two or three weeks, labor markets are going to stay a mess. And that could be a long-term thing because I've heard from school teachers that let's say someone in seventh grade didn't go to school for a year, they could be significantly set back. Not just, it's not like they're still in seventh grade, is that they might've decreased in ability because they just weren't working at it. It's a massive experiment we ran unwillingly. Uh, we'll see how it turns out, right? But I think people are right to be worried. Now, I just, as a, as a final thing, you wrote an article uh, recently on your website. By the way, everybody should go to your website every single day, marginalrevolution.com, as well as 
read your your many books. You've been on the podcast several times about uh, several of those books. But I love this article, How Do You Ask Good Questions? And I love some of these. I've, I've been kind of had a bunch of people on the podcast recently about this topic, but you have really interesting advice here. Like, for instance, it is often better to preface a question with a confession of some sort or with information from yourself. That sets a standard for the respondent, and you set that standard high. Well, why do you think that works as a better question? People want to feel they're doing well in the conversation, especially if it's a podcast, it's being recorded. And I wouldn't quite say they're competing against the interviewer, but like that's the standard, right? So if some terrible interviewer asks me questions, I'm like, eh, eh, whatever, inflation, the budget deficit, eh, you know, and like, whatever. If someone really smart is asking me, you sort of feel it's like playing speed chess, right? Against the better hustler. You've got to up your game. So by starting your question with some content, you're saying to the person, look, I want an answer at least as good as this. And I think it works. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think because people bond too through confession. Yeah. And so, and so the more you bond with someone, uh, the, the better, the more likely they're going to give you a good answer as opposed to like a default answer. And then it's not just interrogation. It's actual dialogue. Both parties are somewhat vulnerable, revealing, creative, right? You're setting a whole tone. You know, it, there's only one of these points here on, on the How Do You Ask Good Questions article that I might disagree with, which is you say, uh, it's you basically imply it's not always the case that if you want to be a better interviewer, you should listen to other interviewers. Your thought was maybe that if you listen to other interviewers, you'll just ask the same questions, the same types of questions other interviewers do. But I know for myself, when I've studied the art of interviewing and I've done a lot of interviews over the years, uh, studying great interviewers gives me, lets me see stylistically how they do it. But like, for instance, Howard Stern has a very different approach. Like I don't ask sexual questions, for instance, to people, and that's what he does. I don't ask gossipy questions. But when you study his style, you see as a way of poking from many different angles uh, over a period of time until he gets to the answers he wants. And just stylistically, it was interesting to see that. Uh, uh, it's interesting that you choose someone who in some regards is a comedian. I think if you look at comedians you have drawn from, like Seinfeld or Monty Python or Larry David, it would be for me. I've taken more from them, from sense of timing, back and forth, ensemble pieces, than I have from interviewers. And the interviewer you name is sort of a comic. So yeah, it's true. Like Chris Rock and Louis C.K., not Dick Cavett. And Dick Cavett was great. But I think it's a little plodding by the standards of 2021. No, I always think uh, comedians are the best public speakers, which is yes. which is why A, I endeavored for a long time to to get that skill, and B, even before I was into stand-up comedy, before I gave a public talk, I would always watch stand-up comedy, because at least for 20 minutes to an hour after watching stand-up comedy, I would have their mirror, my mirror neurons would kick in and I would move like them. I, my voice would inflect like them. And I would, I would sort of like getting an injection of stand-up comedy before giving a talk because I think they're the best public speakers. And it, it would work. That approach would work. So I have a follow-up post. I've written it, but it's not published yet. And it says exactly that. It says, study the comedians. You'll learn more than you will from the interviewers. So yeah. I agree. Yeah, and on the opposite side, I would say there's 
and by the way, I love Larry King also. He's passed away recently, um, but I didn't like his, again, it's a stylistic thing. He wouldn't know anything about his subject until he met them. That was by design so that he would ask, so he would be in the, his, his philosophy was he would be in the same position as the audience, not knowing anything about the subject. I don't quite agree that that works, but, but at least studying his style, I learned to, and, and understanding why he thought this way, I learned to appreciate it, even if I don't use it. So I will say studying, studying interviewers just in general has helped me, but you're right that studying comedians has helped me more. So, it's interesting whether William F. Buckley was an interviewer or a comedian, right? Maybe a bit of both. But one thing you learn from him is you can get away with the absurd if you really mean it and do it with a straight face. And you learn this from Monty Python also. All their like TV skit interview sessions like Miss Ann Elk or, you know, with the soccer quiz with Karl Marx. Like just do it and see what happens. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting um, because, and you mentioned Louis C.K. earlier, Louis C.K. for the first 20 years of his career was known as an absurdist. He was perhaps the best absurdist in on the planet, in the comedy world, because he put so much time into it and, and worked so hard at it. But like, for instance, a typical joke from him in the early 2000s might have been, you know, it was really tough growing up Chinese. And, uh, and then he talks all about growing up Chinese, even though he's not. And then he says, but, you know, I'm not, what was really hard is that I'm not Chinese and I was growing up Chinese. So he really gets into, you know, but it was totally absurd. And then he switched from, not switched, but he brought into his comedy, very confessional, like I hate my kids <laughs> or it sucks being married. And so this goes to your other point about asking questions. He's when he turned his absurdity and he mixed it with a confessional sort of comedy that was a little bit more unexpected. Like I would play his comedy in 2007, 2008 for, for my children. And my five-year-old daughter would be shocked. Like, is, does, do his kids know he's saying this? And uh, uh, it, it really upped his game. And he became, in, in terms of skill level, probably one of the top five in the world, if not the best in the world. And it was adding, just, you know, taking these components from your article, how to ask, you ask good questions. It's almost, uh, I'm extrapolating from that and applying it to Louis C.K. It's, a, it's it, he ended up doing better comedy by applying some of these ideas uh, to his comedy. I just did a podcast with an ornithologist. It's totally serious in one way, but we spent 10 minutes talking about why don't birds have penises? Like that was highly comic in some other way, though we never cracked a smile. And I think you can demand more from your audience and get away with it if you believe in it yourself. Like this is important. Why don't birds have penises? It actually relates to your life, courtship, and it's funny too, but you don't have to laugh at it either. Right, like humor is maybe not always funny, but it's always unexpected. Yes. If you're just saying the same thing everyone else said, then it's not funny or interesting. But if, if you're saying something unexpected, it, it triggers that same part of the brain. And so I guess a final question would be, what's, what's, what in economics, which is the area you know, you're, you're known uh, as, as specializing in, what in economics recently has been unexpected to you? Well, everything that's happened in crypto. At first, I was a skeptic. I would say I'm still agnostic, but I'm struck by how many super talented weirdos work on stuff that doesn't even sound plausible enough to be in a science fiction novel. And when you see that, it's actually a sign there might be something real there. And it's like a startup, you know, maybe we don't know, but it's fascinating. 
And the weirder it sounds, I would say the more seriously you should take it. It's fine to withhold judgment. A lot of it's not proven. Uh, but that, to me, is the number one interesting thing going on right now in economics. Weirdos I, in crypto. I like how the only times you used the word weird or weirdo was talking about people doing crypto. But I would true. argue... I would argue some people think you're weird, <laughs> but, but we'll just, we'll run with this. So that's, that's very interesting. So, so once again, Tyler, I always love having you on the podcast. Uh, we, you have to come on more, but particularly I'm fascinated by the topic of, of your next book. I would love to read it and have you on about it. This is an area, you know, I've had on Anders Ericsson on the podcast. I've had on so many people related to this, this topic. And as you know, um, uh, just learning in general, I've been, I've been fascinated by. So please come on when that book comes out and and would love to talk about it but thank you once again for answering my questions about inflation crypto local economics real estate and many oh do you think real estate ever falls apart because people will start 3d printing modular homes and so the replacement value of a home will go almost to zero no it's about the land value and unless we can like stack land into the sky and you know get past zoning law homes will hold their value excellent well, thank you so much, Tyler Cohen. Again, everybody should check out marginalrevolution.com. What's your last book, Tyler, so we get people to buy it? The book they should buy is The Complacent Class or Big Business or Stubborn Attachments. They're my last three books. And I think we did podcasts about all of them. So get those books and go to marginalrevolution.com where you can see Tyler's great links and articles every day. Thanks once again, Tyler. Great chatting with you, Jim. Take care. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.